the EY Tech Connect podcast brings you candid conversations about the most pressing priorities facing tech, media and entertainment, and telecommunications companies, and provide strategic insights on the key issues that matter to them, including topics such as the top 10 opportunities in tech, the next generation of gaming, the future of connectivity and content, and the latest talent strategies. The EY Tech Connect podcast is out now. Download today from wherever you get your podcasts. It's 4 a.m. on March 28, 1979, while the cities and towns of south-central Pennsylvania are sleeping. Here in the command center of this nuclear power facility, we are quietly ticking through normal procedures. Lights and switches blink and click on a panorama of control panels as we get on with our routine tasks done countless times before. When suddenly, what? That alert never goes off. Nor should it. Scrambling to right the reactors, we check on the coolant system and the feed water pumps. We cannot allow the reactor to heat up, nor can it flood. So many switches, so many lights, hundreds of them, including two just out of sight. One hidden beneath an old maintenance tag. If those indicators are on, it means no water is running in the pumps. And no one has even noticed they are flashing. Greetings all, I'm Don Wildman, and you are listening to American History Hit. Time for another episode. Thanks for joining us. 44 years ago is not a very long time, especially in the realm of nuclear energy, but with half-lives and exponential decay rates. It's all measured in eons rather than days or months or decades, it seems. This being the case, what happened on March 28, 1979, at the Three Mile Island Nuclear Power Facility in central Pennsylvania might as well have happened yesterday. And for those of us who lived through it, I was a soon-to-graduate high school senior at the time, in eastern Pennsylvania no less, it is a very fresh memory. That week, everything that we'd been warned about, that hit movies, were being made about and released that month, starring Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas no less, suddenly became real. It was current events. There was a meltdown. And yet, even so, it seems strange and distant. Maybe that's just the human response to terror, or maybe just for high school seniors thinking only about themselves. Whatever the case, it was sure a weird time to be alive and watching the news. And it would surely be years before we would know the full story. And that's what's exciting today. Four decades on, we can. Sam Walker is an American historian and author based in Maryland. He published an account of this disaster, Three Mile Island, A Nuclear Crisis in Historical Perspective. A former historian for the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, he has focused most notably on research and writing about the nuclear age, atomic energy, and nuclear power regulation and weaponry. He also wrote a favorite history of mine about the A-bomb, entitled Prompt and Utter Destruction, Truman and the Use of Atomic Bombs Against Japan. Hello, Sam. It's great to meet you. Thank you. It's great to be here, Don. 
I saw Oppenheimer last night. Boy, do you have to be in a mood for that movie. Yeah, I've not seen it yet. A number of friends have asked me what I think of it, and, and I haven't had a chance to go out. I've been recovering from surgery, so I have not seen it. But my understanding is it's very powerful. Explosive, I think, is the word, yes. Explosive would uh, be one word, yes. <laughs> Sam, how long had Three Mile Island existed in 1979 to the point of that accident? Had there been any issues beforehand? Well, the plant where the accident occurred, there were two units on Three Mile Island, and the plant where the accident occurred, which was TMI-2, had only been in operation for a couple of months. So there hadn't been any major issues. There were always startup issues with new plants, but it really had just started operating when the accident occurred. Maybe we should do a really basic and really quick review of how this works. Nuclear energy is basically, it's kind of like creating steam but using these rods, uranium rods, to heat up this water that creates the steam that then drives the turbines. That's a really, really simple explanation, right? Yeah, that's right. What the uh, reactor does is to boil water, heat water, to drive the turbines to create electricity. It's a way to boil water. Yeah. I remember being surprised at that when I was a kid. I went to a school trip in Salem, New Jersey, where there was a new plant that they were very excited about when I was a kid. And they took us out there and explained it to us. And I was excited because I actually understood what was happening. Where was the nuclear industry at this point in 1979, I imagine it was growing because we'd just gone through that gas crisis, right? The whole OPEC thing. Nuclear industry was growing. It was growing rapidly. The boom time for the 1960s in terms of plant orders and new construction and operating licenses being issued was the 1960s. By the mm. time of the accident Three Mile in uh, March of 1979, there were about 30 plants, give or take, operating and a lot more under construction and a lot more on the drawing board. So nuclear power appeared to be certainly a major part of America's energy plan, energy resources for the future. And nuclear power was booming. It was also enormously controversial. There was a, a huge controversy during the 1970s about whether nuclear power was safe, whether it was economical, whether it was commercially viable, whether it exposed people to dangerous levels of radiation, what to do with radioactive waste, what were the dangers of proliferation of nuclear materials that might be used by terrorists to build nuclear weapons. So there were all kinds of controversies surrounding nuclear power in the 1970s. It was a headline issue, headline controversy, and a source of a very bitter, bitter debate over the future of the technology. And right in the middle of that, a Three Mile Island accident occurred. I mean, talk about the ultimate PR challenge. <laughs> you have the word atomic or nuclear or anything in that. And the most famous incident of that realm is the atomic bombs being dropped on Japan and the massive destruction. They have nothing to do with each other. I mean, there's atomic technology, but in that time period of all of us getting used to this new idea of nuclear power, you had to really divorce yourself from all those fears and kind of embrace this new idea. The, the big dangers, as you say, were, were the waste and the proliferation and all that sort of thing, but not the explosiveness of it at all. So tell me about that day in March in 1979 when things go wrong. This was a very ordinary day and then something very extraordinary happens. Yeah, it was an ordinary day on the graveyard shift and things were going along routinely. 
And then all of a sudden, a couple of valves shut down, which interrupted the flow of water to the secondary system, which is actually where the water boils, which caused the primary system where the water flows through the core to heat up to very high temperatures. And that caused the reactor to trip to shut down. And that was all not a major problem because it happens, if not a lot, it happens a fair number of times and it's not a problem. The problem occurred after the uh, primary system shut down and to relieve the pressure that had built up, a valve that opened automatically and according to design stuck open. And that valve that was stuck open then allowed the escape of huge amounts of cooling water from the core. And within a short time, the primary system, the core, where the reactor is and where the fuel rods are, started to heat up. And so alarms started going off in the control room, horns were sounding, the lights were blinking, but it wasn't clear what had happened. And the operators obviously knew that something was wrong, but they didn't know what it was. There was no indicator on the control room panels that showed that the core was losing coolant. That's the most dangerous thing that can happen in a nuclear power plant. So they didn't know that they were experiencing a, a loss of coolant accident, which is the worst thing that can happen in a nuclear power plant, and they didn't know what to do. And as it turned out, they did the wrong things and compounded what was going on, what should have been a minor incident into a major accident. So not to blame the operators, they were not trained for this kind of a malfunction. And they were well-trained, they'd scored well on their qualifying exams, but they simply weren't prepared for an accident that they hadn't been trained to cope with. So within a couple of hours, you had a very serious loss of coolant accident and the core started to melt. You were facing the first parts of a loss of coolant accident and indeed meltdown. The worst that can happen to a nuclear power plant is a meltdown of the core. And no one knew at that point that a meltdown had occurred, was occurring, and they didn't take the right actions to cool the core and to stop the melting of the core. So let me take a pause here. To this point, nuclear power has been utterly safe. It has performed as everyone planned it would be. I imagine that pretty much every contingency that could happen in the situation had been gamed out by that industry at this point, right? I mean, we were talking about the China syndrome. That was the famous movie that came out weirdly just two weeks before this incident happened. And the China syndrome is this idea that the coolant is gone and the rods melt down and it just keeps on going right through the floor of the plant and right through to China. That's the idea that nothing's going to get in the way of that kind of heat. And so all of this, I imagine, had already been considered and played out in scenarios, I would think. So it's surprising to me that you would say that they didn't know what to do at that point. All of it had been gamed out in terms of the technical response, in terms of the equipment, in terms of the uh, safety features of the plant. Mm -hmm. It all had been gamed out, it all had been analyzed, it all had been thought about, and it all had been defended against with a whole series of safety features and safety equipment that were designed to make certain that if you had a loss of coolant accident, the plant would respond in time and that you wouldn't have a major uh, accident or a major release of radiation from the plant. And that's always the concern is that the worst case is that the accident is so severe that it overcomes all the defensive equipment and mechanisms sure. and that you have major radiation to the environment like happened at Chernobyl, right? 
What had not been gamed out or even thought about very much was the role of operators and what operators might do when faced with an unusual or unprecedented situation and how they might overcome the defenses that were built into the plant and make things worse than they were. I mean, it was widely concluded after the accident that if the operators had done nothing, that the plant would have shut down. It would have not been a major incident even, let alone an accident, and that the plant would have been fine. But the operators took steps that made things worse because they were concerned not about a loss of coolant accident because they didn't have any indication that the plant was suffering a loss of coolant accident. And they were concerned about another important piece of equipment, the pressurizer, the pressurizer having too much water in it. If the pressurizer, which is a huge tank, about 73 feet tall, and it regulates the pressure in the plant, if that gets too much water in it. It's called going solid. If the pressurizer goes solid, then you can have a major hindrance to safety and to operation. And the operators, according to their training, were concerned about the pressurizer going solid. And so what they did was to reduce the flow of coolant of water for emergency core cooling systems. One of the pumps that came on when the heat drastically increased in the primary system, one of the systems was shut down completely and the other flow of water was slowed to a trickle. And this is what compounded what was happening already with the loss of coolant out the valve that was stuck open. And that's what really caused the loss of coolant accident. So we're talking about partial meltdown of unit two. What is partially melting down? Well, partially meltdown meant, and we didn't find out until years afterwards that there actually had been a meltdown. I mean, all the actions that were taken in the five days of crisis that followed the accident when crisis was severe, and as you indicated, it was frightening for people not only in central Pennsylvania, but for a long way beyond central Pennsylvania. And no one knew at that time that the core had actually melted. They were taking actions to try to prevent the core from melting. Only years after, when they could put cameras down inside the core and found out to the surprise that the fuel rods were not there. There were no fuel rods because the fuel rods had melted. All there was was tons and tons of rubble. And that's when we first found out first indications in 1982, three years after the accident, and, and clear indications in 1985 that a meltdown had occurred. And what happened was about half the core melted. The core consists of 200 tons or so of fuel rods, 38,000 mm -hmm. fuel rods. And the heat got so intense during the accident before action was taken to reverse the actions taken by the operators and to cool the core. And before the core was cooled properly and sufficiently, about one half of the core melted, which means you had a huge molten mass in the pressure vessel. The pressure vessel is a very large container, about 34, 36 feet high, that, that contains the fuel rods and the safety equipment and the coolant and where the reaction takes place in a reactor. And that's the big danger, like we said with Chernobyl, that there will be this meltdown and this creation of enormous pressure within this whole structure, and that blows. And once that blows, all that radiation goes out and starts poisoning people in the environment. And that's the big danger of this among fires and all the rest of it, I suppose. So this was a technical malfunction compounded by human error, leading to a situation that no one really understood at the time. I guess a lot of this has been addressed in more recent years by all the digital technology that we didn't have at that time, right? I mean, they can now surveil this in a whole sort of different way. Control workers misreading, confusing signals. And, and this halted the emergency water cooling system. 
which then heated the nuclear core to dangerously high levels. Am I catching up to you here? That's exactly right. That's exactly what happened. So once this is identified that March morning, how is it handled? What steps do they then take? Well, they take steps to cool the core. The only problem is they can't pour water in because that turns to steam and it's so hot in the core because all these fuel rods have melted or are in the process of melting. The temperature in there is, is at least 4,000 degrees, maybe much higher than that. And so if you pour in water to try to cool the core, it just turns to steam. And if it turns to steam, then that tends to expose the fuel rods. And so they thought, well, instead of pouring more water in, we'll pour less water in it. And maybe that will allow the pressure and the coolant to, to work like we want it to. And that didn't work either because when you poured less water in, it exposed the pour again. And so you had a huge I bubble see. of steam in the top of the vessel. And keep in mind that they didn't know that they had a meltdown at this point. They knew they had a core that was superheated. And they knew they had a problem of trying to cool the core, but they weren't sure how to do it. And all of the steps that they tried to take didn't work very well for reasons of the relationship between heat and pressure in the core. So they were dealing with a situation which was extremely dangerous and extremely difficult to know what to do because it was unprecedented. And no one knew exactly what the damage was, but they knew they, at least by nighttime on the first day on March 28th, which was a, a Wednesday. Late in the evening on Wednesday, it appeared that she had a serious accident, though no one knew exactly how serious and no one knew what to do about it. We'll be right back after the break with more from American History Hit. While you're listening, make sure you never miss another episode by clicking like and follow. And while you're at it, please share this episode with a friend or family member. You're our best means for building our audience and we are most grateful for the help. Thank you so much. 2 Tech Connect podcast brings you candid conversations about the most pressing priorities facing tech, media and entertainment, and telecommunications companies, and provides strategic insights on the key issues that matter to them, including topics such as the top 10 opportunities in tech, the next generation of gaming, the future of connectivity and content, and the latest talent strategies. The EY Tech Connect podcast is out now. Download today from wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered if the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were actually real? Or what made Alexander so great? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit, where I'm joined by leading academics, best-selling authors, and world-class archaeologists to shine a light on some of ancient history's most fascinating questions, like who built Stonehenge and why? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why are they so valuable? And were the Spartan warriors really as formidable as the history books say? Join me, Tristan Hughes, twice a week, every week on the Ancients from History hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. And it's narrated by me, Don Wildman, and is direct audio from my TV show, Mysteries at the Museum. On Mysteries at the Museum, I travel across the U.S. to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history, and about the failed invention from World War II that evolved into one of the most popular toys for kids. Objects carry a lot of power. They tell a story about a person, a place, or a time in history. 
and sometimes they just look like ordinary household objects. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. I think you'll like this podcast because it's telling every kind of American story through fascinating historical objects. So listen to Mysteries at the Museum wherever you get your podcasts. And then comes the human challenge, which is how do we explain to the public that this terrible thing is happening? We don't quite understand what it is, but you need to keep calm. Everything's going to be handled right. I remember this sense in the news of, oh, my God, this thing really happened that they were all worried about. And I want to repeat, it was two weeks before that a very, very big movie came out called The China Syndrome, starring Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas, a young version of Michael Douglas. And they were covering this very kind of event in the movie. This was would be in a movie that had been shot a year before, if not more. It was just weird, uncanny coincidence that it comes out two weeks before. But it means that we as a public are supercharged. We'd all gone out a couple weekends before and seen this movie. And then boom, it happens. It's the weirdest thing. I remember that more than anything at all. Well, trying to explain what had happened to the public was extraordinarily difficult. One, because you're dealing with a very complicated technology. And it was made more difficult on the first day, the first morning, and then again throughout the day on Wednesday, the first day of the accident, that the utility kept making statements like, yeah, it's a minor incident, no danger to the public. The plant will be up and, and running again in a week. You know, that type of thing. And the state, Governor Thornburg and his aides and the experts in the state of Pennsylvania, people at the NRC, which was based in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, just outside of Washington, were not at all convinced. They were afraid that uh, there was something much worse that was going on, but they didn't know for certain. And it really wasn't until mm -hmm. the next day, Thursday, March 29th, that they figured out that what you had here was a very, very dangerous situation. And we have a very hot core and we've got one reactor, only one of four reactor coolant pumps that are functioning. And what happens if that goes out? or what happens if it can't provide sufficient water to adequately cool the core. So they're dealing with all these unknowns and uncertainties, and they're still not sure what caused the accident, and they're still not at all certain how much damage there is, and they're still not certain what the chances are that you might have a major breach of first the pressure vessel, or worst case, the containment building, which is a large dome-shaped building with reinforced steel and concrete walls four feet thick. It's the last line of defense. So there was not panic, but there was a great deal of anxiety at the NRC and the state and by Thursday afternoon by the utility that we have a situation we haven't faced before. And then this is all compounded by the problem of the hydrogen bubble. But the point that I wanted to make was the NRC and the state of Pennsylvania were trying to keep people calm because that was important. They didn't want people to panic, but they didn't do so by telling lies or by right. underplaying what they knew. They just didn't know and what, and what they knew kept changing. Sometimes it got better and sometimes it got worse. They were trying to keep people informed. They were trying to, to let people know what was going on. They were trying to let people know and did let people know that there's a possibility that we might ask you to evacuate your homes but it was a very, very difficult problem because didn't know. Evacuation was recommended for pregnant women and preschool-aged children within a five-mile radius of Three Mile Island, as I understand. And then the evacuation zone was extended further out over the next five days because this keeps building. I mean, we are plastered to our televisions at this point. You know, I remember 
how that went. It was a five day period. You only had the three networks at that point. Everybody's, you know, got their trucks out there and we're all, you know, glued to this whole thing happening. A hundred thousand people did leave the area. I mean, it wasn't a massive evacuation, but definitely people were very alerted to this. But it kind of turned around pretty quick, didn't it? The big question was, do we order an evacuation of a segment of the population surrounding the plant? And if so, how far out from the plant do we order an evacuation, make it mandatory? mandatory evacuation. Mm -hmm. What Governor Thornburg recommended on Friday afternoon, the third day of the accident, when there was an erroneous report about a, a massive release from the plan, which turned out to be mistaken, but they didn't know that right away. And Governor Thornburg, out of what he called an, an excess of caution, recommended the most vulnerable members of society, small children and pregnant women, could or should, if they found it convenient without a major inconvenience or without any sense of panic, evacuate if they lived within a five mile radius of the plant. And a lot of pregnant women and families with small children did evacuate. So did a lot of people who were not pregnant and who were not small children. On that day, Friday afternoon or around noontime, about 70,000 people from the area evacuated. And they did so calmly. They were anxious. They were worried. They were not happy. They were confused. They didn't know what was going to happen, but they did so calmly. There weren't major cases of people panicking and doing foolish things. But that still left the big question of, do you order a mandatory evacuation of an area surrounding the plant of up to 20 miles? And there was talk about that. And in fact, at one point on early Friday morning, before Thornburg uh, recommended that pregnant women and small children be evacuated, that the NRC recommended, it was Thornburg's decision as to whether or not to order a mandatory evacuation. It wasn't the NRC's and it wasn't the federal government, it was the governor. And the NRC had recommended to Thornburg that he order an evacuation of five miles, maybe 10 miles. And Thornburg said, why are you telling me this? What is this based on? Because Thornburg, much more than the NRC, realized what the costs of an evacuation are. You're going to have accidents. You're going to have people panicking. You have farmers mm -hmm. who won't leave their farms. You have people in a senior citizen centers. You have people in hospitals. You have prisons. You have all kinds of things that makes a mandatory evacuation extremely costly and extremely, mm -hmm. extremely inconvenient. And so Thornburg was not going to order a mandatory evacuation unless it became absolutely necessary. And the question then from Friday through Sunday was whether or not a mandatory evacuation was necessary. And at one point, there was talk at the NRC and among state officials about a 20-mile evacuation, in which case you have 600,000 people, you have several hospitals, you have a prison, you have all kinds of mm -hmm. facilities and residences that would make that kind of evacuation extremely dangerous, extremely costly. And Thornburg, much more than anyone, was new from experience that evacuations are hazardous. Yeah, Thornburg comes off very well. I remember feeling that way about him. You know, as a young voter <laughs> back then, I was beginning to see the world through a politician's eyes and ways, and he was actually very good in this situation. He came out liking Richard Thornburg. The odd coincidence also is that Jimmy Carter, who's the president, was a nuclear engineer from his military days, worked on a submarine. How how did the federal response match the state? Were they as present at that point or not? 
Yeah, the NRC sent people up right away from its regional office in King of Prussia, which is close to Philadelphia, as you probably know from living there. It wasn't until mm-hmm. uh, Thursday afternoon, Friday morning, that there was a, a large contingent of NRC people. And Thornburg wasn't very happy with the NRC because he'd gotten advice which he thought was not necessarily sound, including the advice for the evacuation early on Friday morning, the third day that it turned out was based on erroneous information. So it wasn't until uh, Friday afternoon, Thornburg was talking on the phone with Joseph Hendry, who was the chairman of the NRC, was an outstanding nuclear scientist and engineer, uh, knew the technology better than practically anyone in the country. But Thornburg was trying to figure out why the NRC had recommended this evacuation, and Hendry didn't know. So uh, Thornburg, with good reason, got exasperated with the NRC. And finally, after Thornburg had talked to Hendry, President Carter called Hendry, and he said, what's going on? I want, I want to know what's going on, and I, I want you to send up the best person you've got to be my personal representative at Three Mile Island. So the NRC sent the head of the Office of Nuclear Regulation, which was responsible for nuclear plant safety, whose name was Harold Denton. And Denton was a very sharp guy, a very nice guy, a very down-to-earth guy, and he and Thornburg got along fine. So once Denton got there, and he could see what was going on on site, and once he could, and he had some experts with him, he could kind of get a handle on what was going on, even though he admitted that he didn't know all of what was going on. But Thornburg appreciated his technical ability plus his honesty and his frankness about saying, well, you know, if Denton didn't know, he'd say, I don't know. This is a new situation. We've never faced this before. So once Denton and Thornburg were teamed up, they were a really excellent team. And Denton had a uh, direct line to the White House, and he called Carter twice a day and told him what was going on or what he knew about what was going on. One thing I think which is worth noting, no one in the state government or the federal government was playing politics. No one was use this as a means of enhancing political capital. Thornburg played it straight, Carter played it straight, and the NRC certainly played it straight. And their top priority throughout the five days of crisis and beyond was to try to protect public health and safety and try to protect the citizens of central Pennsylvania. You know, what this showed about the systems of even American governance, let alone, you know, how the the atomic energy was being handled, was pointed up, you know, by the later accident at Chernobyl. You saw how badly that was handled and how cruel it really was. This was actually very professionally controlled and therefore the public felt informed and we were all kept very calm. It was a really interesting case study. I'm sure it's been taught many times, you know, in in PR classes and so forth, how to handle this kind of crisis. And they did a very good job about it. Let's talk about the cleanup. Then you have the messy job of figuring out how to get rid of this stuff and getting this plant back online, right? I mean, did they shut the plant down? The plant was was shut down. Well, it was shut down by the accident and, and it was kept shut uh, forever. I mean, once it was clear what had happened, once the cleanup began, and you're right, the cleanup was messy and it was uncertain. Again, they didn't know until three years after the cleanup began that the core had melted. And this made yeah. the whole thing much more complicated. And then in another three years before they found out the extent of the melting of the core. So so the cleanup was a huge job. It cost a billion dollars and it took 10 years. And they found out a lot of what happened and why it happened. In summary, Sam, do you feel 
you know, in the events afterwards, in the cleanup and, and how they could understand what really happened. Does it frighten you more what happened at Three Mile Island in the aftermath than what happened at the time? I mean, should we have been a lot more alarmed? Well, yeah. If Thornburg and Hendry and Denton and President Carter had known that half the Corps had melted, they would have ordered an evacuation immediately, probably out to 10 miles, maybe out to 20 miles, in spite of their awareness, certainly Thornburg's keen awareness of the costs of, of an evacuation. And, and when I talked to Thornburg and when I talked to Denton and to Henry, they all made it clear, yeah, if they had any idea that the uh, damage to the court had, had been so severe, that the meltdown had been so extensive, that they would have felt obligated to order mandatory evacuation immediately. So in that sense, yeah, it was more dangerous than what anyone realized. But the other side of that is that you had a massive core meltdown, a worst case accident in which tons and tons of fuel rods melted. They were molten. They were running down to the bottom of the pressure vessel in liquid form. And yet in spite of that, the pressure vessel was not ruptured mm. and the melted core did not, not make its way, did not melt its way into the containment structure. If mm. the core gets into the containment atmosphere, then you're much more likely to have a, a breach of containment and a massive release of radiation. And that didn't come close to happening. So there's good news about the results of the accident, the outcome of the accident, as well as the loss of a plant. The heroes are the structural engineers who built that pressure chamber and everything else that did the job of containing that meltdown. I guess if there had been a full meltdown, then you're more worried about it going through that, that structure, right? Yeah, you know, there were a lot of studies done after the accident. And one major question that was asked is what would have happened if all the fuel rods had melted? And the conclusion of the experts was it probably would not have reached the pressure vessel and it almost certainly would not have gotten into containment. And even if it had gotten into containment, it almost certainly would not have, have breached the walls of containment. So there would not have been a massive release of radiation. And no one can be sure about that. And partly that, that judgment was based on the circumstances and the design of the plant at, at Three Mile Island. So there was good news, but it wasn't clear, and it still isn't clear, ex exactly how that good news would apply to other plants if they had the same kind of accident. Is Three Mile Island a reason we should embrace nuclear power because so much had gone wrong and yet it didn't cause a disaster? Where do you come down on this? I mean, I have friends and family who are like, why aren't we building nuclear power plants all over the place? It's the answer to the climate change problem, et cetera, et cetera. Where do you come down on that? I come down on the fact that after Three Mile Island, the NRC and the nuclear power industry learned a whole lot. And they made a lot of reforms and a lot of changes, changes in design, many changes and much tighter requirements for operator training. Also, the control rod panels were completely redesigned. One problem that the operators had on the morning of the accident is that you had all these alarms going off and lights flashing, but they didn't tell them anything useful. So major designs for what were called human factors, operator training, control room design, as well as other weaknesses and other flaws that were revealed in the NRC's regulatory process and the industry's approach to designing and building and especially operating nuclear power plants. So performance of plants, safety of plants has gotten a lot better since 1979, based in no small part, in fact, in large part, on the lessons learned uh, by Three Mile Island. So the accident occurred, it's not a good thing. But the other item 
of good news is that there were no major releases of, of radiation from the accident in spite of the huge damage done to the plant. Right. Yeah, there were studies done of cancer rates and so forth, but they were conflicting in their results. I mean, it seems to have not been a source of great pain and torment to the public. A lot of insurance settlements to people who were claiming those kind of things. It's an ongoing thing. You know, this is the deal with nuclear energy. Once you're in there, you're in for the long haul. I mean, we're not even talking about the issues of nuclear waste and how to get rid of these things. And and it's just everything takes so long in nuclear power. So that's an ongoing situation. But uh, for another podcast... Sam Walker is an American historian and author, author of a series of books that you must take a look at. What we've been talking about today is covered in Three Mile Island, A Nuclear Crisis in Historical Perspective. But I encourage you to pick up Prompt and Utter Destruction, Truman and the Use of Atomic Bombs in Japan. It is a thick work, Sam. That's a that's a big book. <laughs> that's one reason it's so popular. It's 108 pages long. Students love it. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. He is a former historian of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and it is an honor to have met you, sir. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Hello, folks. Thanks for listening to American History Hit. Each week, we release new episodes, two new episodes dropping Mondays and Thursdays. All kinds of great content, like mysterious missing colonies to powerful political movements to some of the biggest battles across the centuries. Don't miss an episode. By hitting like and follow, you help us out, which is great, but you'll also be reminded when our shows are on. And while you're at it, share with a friend. American History Hit with me, Don Wildman. So grateful for your support. Thanks so much. This podcast includes music from Epidemic Sound. The EY Tech Connect podcast brings you candid conversations about the most pressing priorities facing tech, media and entertainment, and telecommunications companies, and provides strategic insights on the key issues that matter to them, including topics such as the top 10 opportunities in tech, the next generation of gaming, the future of connectivity and content, and the latest talent strategies. The EY Tech Connect podcast is out now. Download today from wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.